All right. Um, so we were actually talking about this, uh, the kids and I. Is literally what is the word saint? Set apart or yeah, holy. Okay, good. So we tend to use the word saint as sort of a synonym for believer, right? And that's not untrue in the sense that all believers are to be holy. The, the, the point that I'm trying to draw out from this is these are two words that are closely related, but they're not identical. One has to do with the character God's producing in us that we're being, becoming holy. The other has to do with who it is that we're trusting in to have that. So that'd be the faithful part. Bob. And, I would think there's more a different emphasis. Like he's emphasizing character versus faith. Like they're 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 both connected. You can't have one without the other. So uh, I guess the point is, I'm not trying to make them fight against each other. I'm just trying to say, we use the terms pretty loosely and interchangeably. I just want us to pause and say, what do the words actually mean? Because when we say saint here in verse 1, that ties into verse 4, the idea of being holy. And when we say believing or faithful, and when it says faithful, and this is interesting because Kelly and I went to a workshop um, with regard to qualifications for a pastor and is it faithful children or believing children. And he said the way that the Greek is commonly used is when it's modifying something, I think I'm repeating this, I have to go check my notes, but if it's modifying another word, then faithful would be the preferable translation. Here, probably standing alone by itself, we would, we would take it as the idea of believing. So it's faithful as in full of faith, not faithful as in he's a trustworthy guy. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with that. And if that is the case, then when he says, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus... That anticipates what he's going to say in verses 12 and 13. So, all right, number three. God chose people to salvation. More importantly, what's the goal of God's choosing? Why did he choose people? What's he trying to accomplish in us? Okay, so that we'd be holy and blameless. And... Um, that's an important thing for us to keep in mind because there are people at different segments of church history that have tried to disconnect the two. Uh, one of the more recent ones, um, uh, I don't, you probably have had some acquaintance with this. There was a, a conflict among theologians, John MacArthur and some others, about what was called lordship salvation. And there were people that were saying, well, you're adding works to the gospel because you expect people to change when they believe the gospel. Well, what does verse 4 say? Verse 4 says, God saved you because he wanted you to change. So we can't, if we draw a line between those two things, we're drawing a line God doesn't. So that's the, that's the reason that I emphasize that, because, you know, and he's going to come up again. It's going to come up several times in the book. For example, Ephesians 2 and verse 10 we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand. We should walk in them. So salvation is not just we are now saved. It is also what, and we'll get into that in the application, what God is continuing to do in us. 
Uh, number four, what is spiritual adoption? What happens because we're adopted? Paul? Okay. Yeah, good. And this is a pretty profound thing, because like I was saying this morning, you can get the idea of adoption, and it's more than just, you know, here's a person who has a different background than me that's being added to my family, and so there'll be a little bit of an adjustment period. This is, here's a person who's my enemy that I'm bringing into my family. I mean, that's, that's a remarkable thing that God has done when he, when he adopts us, when he makes us his children. Um, anything else on that one? Okay. Um, number five. What's redemption? How is it possible? What's the result of it? How does it come to us? And I'm looking sort of at the successive phrases there in verse 7. So what is redemption? Yeah, I mean, he ties it very closely to forgiveness. Um, the way the word is used elsewhere in the Bible, if we were, if we were payment, buying back, a couple of those sort of phrases kind of tie into it, okay? But a very close part of it either the result that immediately follows from it or like, like even part of it itself is this idea of forgiveness of sins because that's often paired with redemption as we go through the New Testament. Um, but how is it possible? Okay, good. Maggie, what did you have written down? How is it possible? Okay, Jesus died for us, yes. And uh, with Mr. Paul's point, it would be what he did was worth more than what we had done to God. So, yes, definitely. Um, how does it come to us? Kind of at the end of the verse there. By God's grace, okay? And um, uh, the beginning there of verse 8, which he lavished on us. So it's not just... God had His grace and He poured a little bit and that's all He was going to ever give us. It's He spilled it over and abundantly and, and gave us far more than we deserve and uh, definitely all that we needed. So, um, when we come to the mystery of God's will, what is the mystery? Huh? Okay, so that is a mystery, right? But Paul uses, I think, it in a more specific sense. This is where I think you would have had to answer the question. A hard time. <laughs> no, Paul came in before the service and he said, where's the question sheet? So I was giving him a hard time. Bob, if you have thought... So that's, that's definitely one thought. Eric? I was just going to say that maybe it's because it's, it's something that our finite minds could fully grasp. Okay. So there's always, Okay, true. Paul? I think other thought is also the Old Testament, and that can't make 
they had no idea, especially when they were living with other Jews, of, of how that was going to happen, of what was going to transpire. They thought they were going to come in and take over and rule with, you know, the Romans out and all that. Right. But that wasn't what happened at all. Yeah. Sure. So if you look at it very specifically, I think we could answer it this way. We could say the mystery is God bringing the Gentiles into the church. I think you do have a good point, Bob, that he's not necessarily that specific until he gets to chapter 3. And so the zoomed out kind of perspective, I think, is the mystery is God is building this new thing called the church through Jesus. And that's something that was not anticipated until God reveals it. And this is the thing of which Paul's been made the minister. So I think by the time we get to chapter 3, it's narrowed to that specific focus. The Gentiles are now part of this thing that Scott is doing. But more broadly speaking, it's the, the building of the church too. Yeah, and, and again, part of the challenge is how do we understand this in a way that doesn't make it sound like people in the Old Testament were saved a different way than we are today. The common, the common thing is who is it that their faith was in? Their faith was in God. And then as God's progressive revelation unfolded, that became a more specific content of their faith. Um, Corey, did you have something? Or? Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, let me read for you Colossians one twenty six and 27 just as far as the cross-reference there. Um, I guess I'll start in verse 25. He says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery that has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so... It's all those things wrapped up together. Christ in you, the hope of glory, coming to Jews and Gentiles alike in the context of the church. All those things Paul's been made a minister of, he's a steward of, and he's telling it to the Ephesians and to the Colossians and to other places as well. So, um, so it's just something for us to think about because we see mystery and we might think like an intriguing novel and all those sorts of things, but it, it's a specific thing Paul has in mind here. So it just... Good for us to think a little bit more about what that is. So, um, what's the result of the mystery there? Or what does God bring about in connection with it? There at the end of verse ten. Mm -hmm. So everything in earth is in what relationship to Christ? It's under his authority, specifically the church. But broadly speaking, as we come down to the end of Ephesians 1, we're going to see that God's purpose is to exalt Jesus over everything in creation. So it's God the Father, God the Son over all the universe. So, um, so just uh, you have the, the fact Christ in you, the hope of glory, like Colossians says, mystery that Paul's been commissioned to see, see this administration, dispensation, um, working out of God's plan, 
the end result of which is God overall and his church under him. So, uh, I mean, that's, if you pause and think about that for a moment, that's a pretty amazing thing to consider what God is doing there. So, um, just wanted us to, to consider that for a moment. What else do believers receive in Christ? Well, okay, good. And verse 11, even more specifically, kind of flowing out of that, inheritance, good. So our inheritance is what? Yeah, so when I was reading through this, there's that tension of, of inheritance we tend to think of as something future, and yet there's a sense in which, like I said with the parable, the, the parallel to the parable of the prodigal son, the father doesn't have to die to distribute the inheritance, but has God given us all of the inheritance, given that verse 14 says the Holy Spirit is a pledge of our inheritance, right? So you don't need a pledge if you've got the whole thing, right? So, I think it would not be wrong to say simply that the inheritance is salvation, right? But what specifically do we mean about salvation? That's where I think the idea of final salvation, like we can be following God throughout our whole lives, but we haven't reached the end point of that. We're not in God's presence until we come to the end of our lives. Bob? Okay. Yeah, yeah, Eric. Right. Good. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's, there's parallels to like John 17, 3. This is eternal life, knowing Christ. Do you know Christ now? Yes. Do you know him in the way that you will know him when you're in his presence? No, I mean, that's where Paul says, the mirror darkly we see dimly now, you know, all those sorts of things. So, it's not wrong to think of our salvation as something we currently possess, but Paul is looking toward a future reality that is far greater in the full unfolding of all these things. And so this is a, a tension that, and depending on the books that you've read, this phrase may rub you the wrong way, but there's a sense of what people will sometimes describe as already and not yet in Scripture. And what is meant by that, I think at least by the, the Orthodox people who use that phrase, is we have things connected with Christ, but there's a whole lot of things that are still coming, right? We have a relationship with Christ. We know Him, but we know, know Him as we will someday. Uh, a good example of this is what we're going to see in chapter 2, where Paul says in verse 6 that God seated us with Him in the heavenly places. So, we're not actually there but it's so certain Paul can talk about a future thing as though it's a present reality. Well. Maybe he's tying the inheritance. He says we have obtained inheritance. Mm -hmm. He's tying that to 
Yeah. I can see that, but without knowing the actual Greek, it does seem like they're saying we have actually obtained something now. Yeah. Knowing obviously that there's. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. Right. But when he dies, I get the million dollars. So I have the surety that that's, that's going to happen, but I shouldn't be spending the money now because I don't have it yet. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that's a yeah. tough analogy, but it's one that's. Uh, right. Yes, Tina. Well, I, I think the mystery that Paul's getting at is not so much what the inheritance will be. I think the mystery is that Jesus is in and among us as he builds the church of both Jews and Gentiles. So, Because like he says in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. So uh, it's not a mystery. Like we shouldn't be puzzled about what the inheritance is, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Um, well, right, 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 definitely. And so, so let's, let's keep moving through the passage. Uh, who are the first to hope in Christ there in verse 12? It doesn't specifically say in the verse, but... If we, if we look at this section as a whole, it seems like it's the early church. Yeah. Because he continues to say, we and us, we and us, we and us. Right. So he's, he's not stopping that thought. Right. So So, is it a particular ethnic group, or just so I understand clearly what you're saying? I'll say anyone who's following Christ at that time. Okay. So then when he says at the beginning of verse 13, go ahead. So then who's the you also would be my follow-up question. Probably the Ephesians, the Gentiles. So, I... Yeah, maybe because of the reason that he does it in chapter 11, or chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Yeah. And I think there's some people who take it as the apostles, there's some people who take it as like the Jews that formed the early church in Jerusalem. I mean, and maybe Paul's not thinking in like, you know, here's the 1,500 people who first trust in Christ, and anybody who comes later is the you also, right? You know, I don't think he's being that specific. Well, and again... I hear what you're saying about the flow of the text, but... but I, I know we can't always say, we can't always ignore what we've read in other passages. I right. remember which missionary journey he's directing, what, you know, when in this timeline this is, and we do the timeline, but it would make sense that if this was not one of Right. That he's saying all who follow, which is also you, the church there. Yeah. I don't know. That seems like it flows more. Yeah. With the, the assemblies. Sure. Eric? Sure. 
Yeah. He does say a similar thing in 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins as opposed to the we and us. So again, at the end of the day, he's, he's basically saying God has done a work, broadly speaking, in the church. And I think that might be where Eric's explanation is helpful. God's done a, church, a work, broadly speaking, in the church. And then he sort of narrows his focus and says, specifically, you Gentiles, you've believed too. Um, verse 15 to 22, I'm praying for you these things. Chapter 2, you were dead. 2.11, you the Gentiles were separate from Christ. And then verse 3, he says, I, Paul, and, and sort of goes on to this extended aside. So I think, he, I think he's sort of like way zoomed out looking at all of the things God's doing in salvation. And then he says, here's what God's doing, generally speaking, in the church. And then I think there may be a transition where he's sort of narrowing the focus a little bit to the, the Ephesians, right? Um, so, yeah. What's that? Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and then he's going to make the point, I think, in 13 and 14, that the Gentiles believed in a similar way. So, question eight, and then we can come back to that in just a moment, but question eight, what are the necessary parts of salvation? Jews, Gentiles, anybody who comes to Christ, what are some of the necessary things that have to be part of that? Okay. Faith, okay. But specifically, verse 13, what does he say at the beginning we have to have? Okay, the word of truth, the message, the gospel. You have to hear the gospel and you have to believe. Now, we know repentance from a ton of other passages. Um, so that's obviously part of it as well. But just from this passage, gospel message, response of faith, okay? And then what is, what's that? What's that? Yeah, I mean, when I say, yeah, so when I say necessary parts of salvation, um, I guess, and this is where these sorts of things get tricky when we try to think about them in our minds, like, what, what's the order of these things? Like, do you get sealed with the Spirit and regenerated, and, like, how does that all flow? So, yeah, the sealing of the Spirit in this passage is very clearly linked with message, belief, receiving the seal of the Spirit. All right, so just a quick aside, because it's probably worth thinking about. It's not something we're going to solve right this minute, but I just want to raise it as an issue to consider. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, does belief come first or does new life come first? If you have to pick one... Yeah. Okay, Cheryl, what were you thinking? Okay. Right. Yeah. So I, I, if I was going to write it all out in order, and it's tricky because these things are happening virtually simultaneously, right? So there's a point at which. I'm dead in my sin, right? There's a point at which I'm alive in Christ. And in between those two points, I begin to believe in Christ. I, I 
I receive new life, I'm sealed by the Spirit, I'm redeemed, I'm adopted, I'm baptized into the Spirit. Like all of these truths that we know about salvation happen in that very small window, right? I would tend to argue that if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, the order looks like God gives us new life to which we immediately respond in faith and express belief in Jesus Christ. But I don't think we can argue that from this passage per se. Yes, maybe so the next chapter. Kind of like, right. Yeah, so in connection with that... Um, there would be an understanding that John 1 means the light that comes into the world is everybody's sort of been bathed in the light that Jesus brought and now is in a spot where the only thing that stands between you and heaven is your, the, your free choice. I, when I read passages like Romans 3, I have an issue with that. That being said, there are people who would hold to God's sovereignty and salvation who would say the order is instead illumination of the Holy Spirit Belief, regeneration. Paul, what was your thought? The other person in scripture says that none of us would be saved if God didn't draw us first. Right, yeah. So what is that drawing? Is that faith? Do you give us the faith to be? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it too. So we'll pick it up when we get to chapter two three weeks from now and uh, talk about it some more, but just something to think about. We'll go to the application questions now. Um, Number one, Paul says, blessed, blessed, and blessing. What's the main point he's trying to make? What's the response, if there's a response, that he's trying to produce in us? Okay, right, that's true. What else, Bob? It's not all one target. Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. Good. How could we know what response we ought to have? Yeah, all those things are true, but how do we know from the context that we're correct if we say... Paul wants us to express praise to God. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. What does he say there? I've heard some things. Verse 15. What's verse 16 he does? He doesn't cease to give thanks. And if he gives thanks that they have faith, who's he ultimately giving thanks to? God who produced the faith in them. So I think that would be the thing that would tell us we're on the right track when we say our response ought to be to the praise of his glory. There's the the repeated phrase in the first part, and then there's what Paul does next in chapter 1. So different passages of Scripture have us doing a response of think a certain way, do a certain thing. This one sort of bridges the gap between the two of them, right? Understand these truths about salvation 
which then naturally leads us to an action, which is to praise and worship God, give thanks for what he's doing. And so um, it doesn't necessarily, it's, it's not always like a really profound thing when we think about that with regard to the passages that we're looking at, but it is helpful because, for example, if there's a passage that says, think a certain way, and then we turn it into a, and do this, but the passage is not a, and do this, what do we often end up doing? Sometimes we add to what God wants us to do. And if it's a, do this, but we want to leave it at the realm of, I'm just going to sort of think about these things, then we're not actually arriving at the point of obedience. So those are a couple of things we have to, that's the point of, of what I was trying to get at there. So, uh, number two, so there's these, Actions of God that lead to or are connected with purposes or results of those actions. For example, he chose that we would be holy in 1 verse 4. So, these pairs of words or ideas show us salvation. It's not just a one-time decision, but an ongoing work of God throughout our lives. How then should we think differently about our salvation? If it's not a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing work of God, how does that affect how we view it and participate uh, Participate is a word that I'm a little hesitant on using, but I think you get the idea. Okay, good. So if we think it's a one-time event, we're like, good, I don't have to do anything else. But the idea of growing would come in there. What else? Yes. So, I suppose if I was saying it this way, I would say justification is a one-time act of God. Sometimes we have viewed salvation, going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier tonight, as I make a one-time decision, and then I go do whatever I want after that decision. So that's the thing that I'm trying to argue against. Yes, clearly, God saves us at a specific point. Right. So... Um, the point that I'm trying to make is if God saved you to be holy and if God adopted you to be a part of his family, these are like dynamic, active, ongoing effects of the one act that God has done that continue throughout our lives. So we should not be content saying, I prayed a prayer here and my life looks exactly the same way now that it did 10 years ago. That, that's, the, that's the thing that I'm trying to get at. Or... We should not think, I prayed a prayer here, but I'm living in all these kinds of sins, but it's okay because I prayed a prayer here. Because when God says, I saved you to be holy, this doesn't match with to be holy, even though I think that I made this decision back here. That, that's, that's some of the things I'm trying to get at there. So. Okay, good. <laughs> No, those are, those are good labels. Um, so we can say justify, sanctify, glorify. We can say initial or positional. We can say, I forget what the middle one is, and then there's like the idea of final justification. I think it's more clear if we don't use justification for all three parts of it. Evan? Yeah. 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 
That, that's, and that's a good, simple way to think about it. They are all parts of this one thing that God is doing, but it's easier in our minds to sort of break them down into, into different segments. And so, um, yeah, so the bottom line is God's doing something now. And if God, if you don't have a sense that God is doing something in your life now as a Christian, then it's an opportunity to examine the why. Is the why this was an empty decision that I did for the wrong reasons and didn't actually trust in God? Or is there some element of sin that's interfering with the progress that's supposed to be happening in my Christian life? Or is there some gap in my knowledge where I've just sort of felt like because I have a misunderstanding about what salvation looks like, that everything is fine even though there should be change? I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we could look at it. I think a passage like this calls us to say, look at all these things God is doing. Okay? What's going on as far as all those things in my life? Am I thinking about them? Are they affecting me? You know, all those sorts of things. So, Last question there. Salvation is described as to the praise of His glory. Should this affect the way that we live? If salvation is to the praise of His glory, should it affect the way that we live? Yes. That's a safe answer. Yes. Um, how? Some of it's probably the things we were just talking about, right? Because if it's about God, not about us, then I... What's one of the, if it's about God, not about me, that I'm saved, what's one of the natural things that is excluded? What can I not do if God saved me instead of me saved me? Say, I did it. Can't boast in it, right? Paul says that in Romans. Boasting is excluded because it's by faith, not by works. Okay? Uh, any other things that sort of enter into the way that we live our Christian lives that are different if we understand that it's about God, not about us? Jared? Okay. Yeah. It's God's thing that he's doing, so I can't come up with my own alternate scheme. Huh? I think there should be a level of Okay. part there, the way that we present the gospel, which ties in a little bit to how Bob was saying, but if we are presenting the gospel in light of the fact that the gospel is about God, not about us, how does that change how we present the gospel? Okay, good. So we don't have to change the product because it's not our thing, we're the message. Okay, good. Good. Um... What else? Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that we're not motivated to do it, but it means that all the weight of that's not on us. So, good. 
Any other things about how we present the gospel that are affected by realizing the gospel? Corey? Yeah. Sure. And some of that requires more effort on our part. Uh, Kelly was at the store, and some lady came by, chucked a tract in her cart, and, and like disappeared. <laughs> Which is one way to do it, not the way that I would recommend, but we have, it is true, yes, we need to, um, and so Kelly got saved at that point, and it's, no, 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 no. Um, so, but the point of what I'm trying to say is, the level of excitement, we, we are, we are sometimes hesitant to have those conversations with people because we think things like, I don't have enough time, or it's going to be uncomfortable, what will they think of me, or all of those sorts of things. So, sort of a quick aside, uh, the week that we're going to be gone, Bob's going to be going through the exchange booklet some more, so I would encourage and challenge you, in light of the discussion we're talking about salvation here, especially if you didn't have a chance to go to the, the workshop, or even if you did and you want a refresher, um, we ordered more of them, and uh, I would encourage you to uh, get those copies and kind of think through more how you can use tools like that, certainly not the only tool, but a helpful tool, to share the gospel with other people, because if it's about God, not about us, there are, we have to set aside our, our pride and, and all the excuses that we make, which is not to say every one of us has to approach it exactly the same way. This is not like a rant about personality types. This is a, all of us have a responsibility. How can you, in the situation and the circumstance that God has put you, fulfill that responsibility? Right. And then we gotta, we gotta do it, right, Jonathan? Right. Without God, we are just as bad, if not worse than that. That's a great reminder, too. Good. All right, let's wrap it up there and uh, close with a word of prayer, and we'll sing our final hymn. Lord, we thank you for these amazing truths about the salvation that you have accomplished. I trust in all of us here. Help us to rejoice in these things, to be driven to worship you more, to then be spurred on to see others. Um, sharing these blessings that you have poured out abundantly on us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.